Hey everybody, this is Fran Freshella, and welcome to this week's World of Basketball. This is the podcast that shrinks the globe for you and brings you hopefully very interesting guests from every corner of the globe. And uh, we're uh, we're on our way to 100 episodes. Coming up on that soon, probably by the end of the summer. And today we've got a special guest from Down Under, uh, Marty Clark, who is the technical director of the NBA's Global Academy. Uh, they'll be in the news coming up. Um, well, they already are, are in the news this week because Josh Giddy, uh, a young man who grew up in Australia, uh, played at the Center for Excellence, uh, which you'll hear about shortly, um, and also the NBA Global Academy. Actually, the first NBA draft pick out of the Global Academy. Josh Giddy this past week was named to the NBA All-Rookie Second Team, and uh, minus some injuries later in the year, he would have been a first-team NBA All-Rookie. He had a phenomenal year. They're likely to have another high draft pick in Dyson Daniels, another Aussie, and uh, coming out of the NBA Global Academy. And then another guard right behind Dyson Daniels, Tyrese Proctor, who is already committed to Duke and John Shire. You'll hear more about him. Marty Clark will talk about those guys, his basketball background, his time at St. Mary's with Randy Bennett. Uh, he'll get into Matty uh, Della Vadova, Patty Mills, Australian boomer culture, and uh, it'll really be fun. I know that my cohort, my partner, my producer, Chris Tyler, anytime we have an Aussie on, um, he gets particularly interested. And uh, we're going to get a chance to hear from Coach Clark, a guy that you know a lot about, Chris, because he's, uh, I think, in a basketball community, you could say in Australia, he's uh, pretty much right near the top of the list as far as the coaches. Absolutely. He's he's very highly regarded in, in Australian circles, obviously has a long career as, as a coach and now doing great stuff at the uh, NBA Global Academy, as you said. He's also a very happy man as well uh, at the moment because in his home state of Tasmania, we spoke about the team, the Tasmania Jack Jumpers on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was. It was their yep. first season in the NBL, which is the main league in Australia. And they ended up making the grand final. I don't think anyone expected them to make the grand final. By the way, a team captained by former St. Mary uh, player, Clint Steindl, uh, if anyone yes. remembers that name. Yep. Um, yep. And so they, they, they just balled out all season. They made the grand final. They beat my Melbourne United to, to make it to the grand final. Ultimately lost to Sydney, the Sydney Kings, um, in straight sets. I think it was three from three. But just being yeah. able to have that success and to bring some excitement to Tasmania. They haven't had a team for many, many years. So to be able to bring basketball back to that state is, is phenomenal. And, and it was just good to see that, uh, that they had that success early on. Okay. So in the United States, we grew up hearing about the Tasmanian devil. I don't even know what the Tasmanian devil is. Where <laughs> is Tasmania as it relates to the, you know, that landmass that is Australia South uh, it's, it's, it's right island, at the bottom. Right? It's it's yeah. It's the island that uh, that you see at the bottom of of Australia, right? Right at the underneath Victoria, yeah. there underneath Melbourne, which is where I'm from. And I think Coach Clark was surprised that I knew he was from Penguin. Yeah, which is uh, a little. He said actually from the outskirts of Penguin, and uh, I I did some research because that's why we that's why you have Wikipedia. <laughs> there is a big penguin right in the town square. It's <laughs> I don't know. It is. I mean, it's a massive piece of concrete that's painted as a penguin. So. I don't think we got into that, but uh, anyway, you you will enjoy that. Uh, also, as I, if you like what we're doing or you're new to this podcast, uh, subscribe to the podcast, World of Basketball. You can get us anywhere where you get your podcast. You name it, we're there. And, uh, give, and rate and review us. And if you like what we're doing, give us a five-star. Always helps. And uh, Chris, I just spent my 12 days in Springfield. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in training camp with the United States 3x3 Pro Tour team, which uh, we will pick here soon. Uh, we had a fabulous training camp. We've got some very good players, mostly successful G League guys, a couple guys that have had a cup of coffee in the NBA, and uh, we had a lot of fun. We're learning a sport. Uh, it was new to me. Uh, we all play three-on-three, -three, but FIBA three-on-three -three is a whole new animal because of a 12-second shot clock, fast pace. And uh, really enjoyed it. So uh, sometime early July, we're going to be starting the trips over to over to Europe and playing these uh, FIBA professional tournaments. It's going to be fun. That's so exciting. How long does it take 
these guys to sort of get into the rhythm of playing the three X three game? Because you, you mentioned when we chatted a couple of weeks ago about this, that, uh, you know, a, a lot of these guys just aren't used to playing three X three on right. three on three. They're used to playing the five on five game. It is a bit different. How long did it take them to sort of figure out what to do and to get the best out of themselves? Uh, they haven't yet. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, it's it's a work in progress. Because well, a lot of this is about teaching. The, the rather than like it's it's both scouting and it's about teaching the, the fundamentals. Well, it's repetitions. Yeah, yeah, it's repetitions too because we've all they all know how to play basketball, but three x three is a, uh, you know, like I I compare three x three if if the mile if the fifteen hundred meters in the Olympics is five on five basketball, then three x three is the three hundred meter hurdles. Yeah, it's. It's it's different. It's still track, but it's a different sport. It, it's a different event. It's speed, conditioning, and agility, and that's what three x three is. And uh, you know, the best teams in the world are all over thirty. The Serbians, the Lith- Lithuanians, our guys uh, called Princeton. It's a, there's a team that represent, represents the United States. Um, and those guys are primarily in their early thirties. So our team that we put together, the average age will probably be twenty four. And it, these will be guys that have been in the G League. Uh, not everybody, but we've got a couple of good young players that I think are going to be good. But I'm really enjoying it. And uh, this is a summer of learning for us. And you don't start to qualify for Paris 24 and 3X3 until next July 1st. So everything, everywhere we go this summer is going to be about ex- uh, experience and repetitions. I will say this. We will be as athletic as any team we play this year. But we're going to play against a lot of teams on the on the FIBA 3x3 tour that have way more experience, and uh, you know at times we'll probably carve our, carve us up some. But I, I think the USA Basketball people, our committee, was very pleased with the kind of talent we have, and we'll get into that as the summer goes on. But uh, really good experience. You know, I'm really excited about helping USA Basketball build a 3x3 program and uh, move it forward because I think it's going to be a sport that catches on not only here in the States, but around the world. And uh, it's an Olympic sport. And as we said last week, our women won the gold uh, in Tokyo. And now it's time for the men to uh, step up and continue to be competitive. Exactly. And if anyone can help grow that format in the United States, Fran, it's you. Well, you know, I love the game. You know, I'm passionate about it. Uh, You know, I love international hoop, Olympic hoop. So uh, I'm ready to give it. Give it a, sh- a shot. So uh, speaking of international basketball, Mr. Tyler, uh, here is uh, a great conversation with Martin Clark, Marty Clark, who is the technical director of the NBA's Global Academy uh, uh, in Australia. And you will hear some fascinating information on Australian basketball and also how the NBA is growing the sport around the world through the Global Academy. Enjoy. Coach, uh, welcome to World of Basketball. We're honored to have you on. Uh, thanks very much. Obviously, a very esteemed list of people you've had on. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to be joining. Well, you're you're esteemed in your own right. And we're going to get into all that, but uh, I I think anybody who knows me knows I have a special affinity for Australian basketball. I have many friends uh, that have come from the basketball culture of of Australia. Um, having covered the Olympics last summer, as I did for NBC here in the United States, I've asked a couple of my Aussie friends this, but I'll start off with this. What did it mean to you when the Boomers won the bronze medal and they defeated a heck of a team in Slovenia? What did that mean to you personally, given your background in Australia basketball that goes back to your time at the uh, at the academy, at the at the Australian Institute? Um, yeah, I guess personally, it's, uh, it was relief as much as anything else. It's something we've been, been close. I want to say we, I've been part of that. I've obviously coached at the, uh, 2012 Olympics with Brett Brown. Uh, but a lot of the players that have come through either the Australian Institute of Sport, which is now the center of excellence, um, or you know, Jock Landale at uh, St. Mary's. So I've, I've had, I've had a minor part to do with a lot of those guys. I mean, uh, winning the, Winning the medal was was unbelievable. It was fantastic. It was great for the for the sport in the country. It was great for the um, the people that have gone before. I mean, the people that have put the real hard yards in when basketball wasn't a very big sport in this country. Um, probably the, 
the thing I remember most is the phone calls from players afterwards, actually. And, and, and people don't need to do that, but I think that's part of the, the culture of Australia is we're, we're grateful and thankful for what people do for you. Uh, and I haven't coached some of those guys for 15 years, but they're on the phone like in the next hour or two and trying to share the experience. And I think that's what it turned into nationwide. It was a, a shared experience. Even people that weren't real basketball followers uh, grab hold of that, the occasion, the sense of occasion. And, um, and I think obviously Patty did a great job of making sure that people were very aware of what it, uh, what it meant to the, the community at large, not just the basketball community. What did it, you know, you, you coached many of these guys, as you mentioned, and two in particular, Joe Ingalls and Patty Mills have been, you know, have been mentored by you. What was going through your mind when Patty had this out of body experience in this game, really? Yeah, I was, I was not, I mean, not at that level, but I've seen Pat do that before. Um, he comes from Canberra, where the Institute's set up, and it's a very small basketball community. I've seen him take his junior teams to national championship games and, and have that sort of performance, but to to do it on the the highest of world stages is phenomenal. He gets that look in his eye, and we've got a big photo of Pat uh, as we walk into our locker room, and it's from that game. And you can see he was not going to let Australia lose. I mean, obviously, whether you do it by scoring points or whether he does it by playing D or rebounding assists or just general leadership, I mean, that night that that patch he put on where it just seemed like no one could stop him. Uh, it was, yeah, so I've seen this before. And this is, I, I'm pretty sure what's <laughs> going to be here. So, yeah. Yeah, it was really, really cool. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, there's a word that uh, I, I know people use about uh, the, your, your country, and it really fits your basketball culture mateship. Yeah. You know, when we talk about mateship, I, all I can think about is, all the guys who have played through the years for the boomers describe what mateship is and how it fits your basketball culture so well. Yeah, well, it is a big part of our culture. We've got a few things that make up our culture that may be a little bit different, but that certainly is one is doing it for your, for your mates, making sure you don't leave anyone behind, make sure you drag everyone with you. Um, and it's, it sort of fits with the Australian culture of, um, She'll be right, mate, is one of the big sayings. You know, don't worry about things too much. It's going to work out. And I think a lot of sports people get um, caught up in what ifs or what happened or, or why did that happen. Australians tend to be able to have a fairly narrow bandwidth between highs and lows. And I think over the course of a season or course of a tournament, that's a really important skill to have. You know, don't, uh, you, know you can celebrate, and we, but you don't want to get too low, don't want to get too high. And, so long as we trust ourselves and each other, and that's the mateship part of it, uh, then it's going to work out okay. And I think that's a big part of our culture. Just like the, the flip side of that is um, we have a thing called tall poppy syndrome. And if you get too big for the team, if you get too big for your boots, uh, and you pop your head up too much, you're going to get it knocked off. And those two things really do fit together in how we are as people. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it and it shows on the court because there's a there's a camaraderie, um, more most particular to me because I watch it during the Olympics and international play. But the boomer culture is definitely about mateship. There's definitely no question. Those guys have kind of known each other forever. It seems like. Yeah, and it's uh, you know we talked about that regularly in the academy, um, and it's plastered up on the walls about what it means to be a boomer, and uh, and a big part of it is being finding a role within the team and, and being comfortable with it and being accepting of the role you're given, not necessarily the role you may want at that point in time. And you have to earn something. If you want something more, you have to earn it. Uh, and the flip of that is there's also no guarantee. You could do everything absolutely perfectly right. And maybe there's just someone that's just a little bit better at that, uh, that role or that position. And, uh, and I do think that, holds teams in good stead in uh, in tournament play you don't have a lot of people worrying about himself so yeah all right let's talk about you you were a basketball player from a place called penguin <laughs> yes from tasmania. Tasmania. penguin tasmania <laughs> about four thousand people maybe 
Oh, uh, not even that. When I was, when I lived there, it was about fifteen hundred. And I, I wasn't actually from Penguin. I was from a few miles out of Penguin, so I was even smaller. Oh, so a suburb, a suburb of Penguin. Part of a suburb, out of dirt track. Uh, okay, you get onto the uh, the dusty gravel road to get to our place. Yeah, I came off a farm. Well, when you when growing up then at, at that time and in in Tasmania, I know Aussie rules football was probably big. You you kind of had. You had choices. You could have yeah. played basketball or played football, and you chose basketball. How did that come about? Yeah, I, I guess it's like uh, like most things in life. Timing is a big part of it. When I'm when I was at that age, nineteen seventy four, I was seven years old, and uh, you're at that very impressionable age. They built a basketball court, the first one they built in the town. I'd never heard of the sport, didn't really know much about it. My sister started to play, and so I thought, oh, well, I'll get involved in this and enjoyed it. I, I still played football and cricket and surf club and a lot of other stuff, but um, there comes a point in everyone's life where you've got to make a decision. And I'd seen the Olympics. Uh, I grew up without a TV, but my grandparents lived up the road, so I'd run up and watch the Olympics. And um, Ian Davies in Moscow, 980, had, uh, had a phenomenal tournament. And then 84 Olympics came on and Australia had done well. And that was about the time I had to start making a choice. And uh, my choice was really I wanted to go to the Olympics. Uh, football, I love football, but you can't leave Australia <laughs> to play it. And that, that was really the, the basis of my decision was I, I want to see the world. I want to go around. I want, I want to be part of the Olympics. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, I was an assistant basketball coach in 1987 at Ohio State, and Gary Williams was the head coach, now in the Hall of Fame. He was an assistant coach on the United States team that played in the under-19 World Championships yes. in Bormio. And I remember him coming back. I did some research on you, Coach. <laughs> but I remember him coming back to the States, and they got beat twice by Yugoslavia. Yes. And you played the United States. I, I looked it up. You, you played them in uh, pool play. But he came back and he said, there's a kid on Yugoslavia by the name of Tony Kukoc. He had 37 on us. I remember there were floods. The tournament was postponed for a while. That's right. But I was impressed and surprised that you were on a team that not only – I mean, I, I recognize names. Luke Longley, Mark Bradkey, Shane Heal. But – Prior to coaching, what do you remember about that? That was an amazing tournament because USA had uh, Danny Manning, Gary Payton, Stacey Ogman, uh, Vlade Divac played, your yeah. Aussie teammates played. What do you remember about Bormio? Well, I remember we went to um, we went to Yugoslavia prior to the tournament and we stayed up in the, the Olympic Village in Sarajevo with the Yugoslav team that had yeah, Kukoc and Rajar and Divac and uh, Sasha was on that team. I mean, they, they were stacked. We didn't, this is pre internet days. We had no idea who these people were. We played them in some practice games and we practiced with them and then we split off. They went, they went to do their last week, well, what we thought was the last week of prep and we went into uh, the Alps in Italy and played uh, Brazil that actually had Walter, Walter Rosé, who's the Latin American uh, technical director. He was their starting point guard, which we didn't work that out until a couple of years ago that we played against each other. Uh, we played in Italy and China in a uh, pre, pre-tournament. And during, during the game, um, there were floods and it basically knocked out half of the mountain and it fell on a town and they were going to postpone the tournament altogether. They were going to cancel it. Um, the town of Bormio decided that it would be okay to play if we could put it back a week. Um, and so I don't know whether you've seen the documentary called 250 Steps by the Yugoslav team That's about the, that week in between. They're three and a half years of meticulous preparation and now being thrown off by a week. Um, so what should they do? Oh, let's go and run the, the steps up the ski jump at the Olympic Village. That sounds like a good idea. I'm sure Vladi <laughs> was pretty happy about that. Yeah. But, uh, yes. So, so we were kind of stuck up the mountains in um, – in near Bormio uh, for a week, literally under martial law, there was helicopters and stuff flying around. And eventually, you get down here. They say, they say you're allowed to play, and uh, I think just the again the the uncertainty of we've done all this work and we're not going to get to play. <laughs> so when you do get to play, it's like well, let's just go and play now. And as you say, you know, we we 
played the US and you know, Larry Johnson, Stacey Altman, the two Williamses, and Gary, phenomenal team. Stevie Thompson that I then met years later at Oregon State. Um, and they beat us by four in the, in the game. We actually had a shot to shot to win it, but missed, and then they had free throws. And anyway, it was a fantastic game. But great to see names that then went on and did such wonderful things in sport. Yeah, did you recognize the greatness of somebody like Kukoc then when you saw him when you worked yeah, out with him? Well, when I recognize the greatness, I guess it's hard to say that as an 18-year-old, you're going to write on what he became. But I can remember dribbling the ball down the floor. They played this massive big 1-3-1 one, one zone. And Tony was at the front of that thing and you had you know, Raja and uh, Vladi. Uh, it's like... I can't see anywhere to pass it. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was phenomenal. And because we had spent that two weeks with them, we kind of got to know those guys. And, uh, yeah, a really great time of, uh, well, certainly our lives, and, but a bit of basketball too. And it was a, a fantastic tournament. Exactly, yeah. Well, you, you later went on, I think, played professionally. Yep. And then coaching. How, you're, I mean, I, I met you a few years ago. Of course, I knew who you were but we got a chance to meet when you were at St. Mary's. Um, you, you get into coaching uh, first in Tasmania, but yep. then the, the big thing for many of us here in the States that love basketball is we heard about the AIS, the, the Australian Institute of Sport. Now, now the Center for Excellence yep. uh, that the NBA Global Academy is a part of. Tell me how that came about and why it's been so important in development of all these terrific Australian players. We mentioned Patty, we mentioned... Joe Ingles, uh, Matty Della Vadova, um, yeah, so many others, Aaron Baines. Yeah, Andrew it goes Bowen, on and on. It goes on and on. Matt yeah. Nelson, there's been heaps of them. Um, well, the Institute itself was set up on the back of Australia winning no gold medals at the 76 Olympic Games. There'd been some previous discussions around what was happening in uh, Europe with their uh, their sports systems and their institutes of sport. Uh, and so there'd been some modelling done there. It was really fast track when we went to went to um, Moscow and won. Oh, sorry, Montreal and won one silver and four bronze. It was the first time for years we hadn't won a gold. So they said, "Well, let's put this thing in place." They built it in Canberra because it's right next to the um, seat of Parliament. Uh, I guess, as most parliamentarians are, uh, they'd like to see what they're spending their money on, and if it's right there, we can go and knock on the door and say, "Can we please have some more?" Uh, and there, there were eight sports initially and basketball was one of those eight which for the time was a little unusual because it went to more traditional Australian sports and then only basketball and remember the the National League the Pro League here had only been going for for well starting in 79 uh, and it really hadn't gained much momentum so for basketball to get in on the ground floor was a huge bonus as with most things, you've got to build some sort of tradition and, and culture and you've got to gain the trust of people to want to send their players to the AIS. And I think that happened reasonably quickly. The 87 group that went away and came fifth was the first team to beat a USSR team uh, and do so well. I think then people started looking and said, well, this is a good place to send players. And then it really snowballed. Um, Grew and then it's, it's pretty much now every kid that comes up in basketball wants to get a scholarship at the what's now called the Centre of Excellence. Uh, here's a basketball question for you. Australia has produced so many quality guards. Uh, Del Vadova, Patty, Joe Ingles, really, he's not a guard, but he, he, he is a guard. And now the young guys, you know, Josh Giddy, who we'll talk about, uh, second team All-NBA rookie team today. Some people think he should have been first team. Uh, many people do. But, but here's the basketball question. Is the, is the, can you teach passing vision? Like so many of these guys have great vision. Is it the culture of what we talked about, the selflessness of uh, mateship? Or what, what's, the, what's the teaching behind creating someone with this vision? Or is it instinct? Yeah, I, you have to have a willingness to pass. And I think that does fit our culture. But I, I think it's also just practicing passing. And I think a lot of like the workout guys practicing a lot of dribbling and shooting, but they do lots of things on their own. And there's a connectivity in basketball that passing becomes that. Now, whether it's pick and roll passing or post-entry or kick-ahead passing in transition or top penetration, 
we do a lot of work on the thing that joins the individual school with the team, and that's the passing aspect. So we, we spend a lot of team, a lot of time on it. Uh, I think some people are going to be naturally better because they have the vision and the willingness to pass. And then we just put in sequences of looks. What are we looking for? So this is your plan. When you put the ball on the floor, this will be your first option, second option, third option. It's hard to find something if you don't know what you're looking for. And basketball, as you go up levels, everything becomes quicker and the athletes become bigger and longer and more experienced. So if you don't have a good plan of what you might be looking for, you're not going to find it very often. So we spend a lot of time on the skill of passing, creating some chaos to enhance the ability to find which, but definitely the sequencing of once I dribble it, I know someone's going to be there, there or there. Uh, yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that. I love the chaos aspect too. I, I'm a huge overload yeah. guy at practice, making the, the drills tougher than the game and yeah, make, taxing them mentally and physically. And, that's particularly true, I think. I've become a lover of, of international pick-and-roll basketball. Mm-hmm. And, you, and your guys, unlike many of the young players in the States, and I'll get into this in a second with you because you have the experience of being on both sides of the Pacific, but but international guys kind of grow up seeing all five players, um, especially in pick-and-roll, as opposed to the college guys who come off a ball screen looking to try to find a way to score. And, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the – it's called pick and roll for a reason. There's a roller. And if you don't if you don't put the roller first, it would just be called pick and drive. Yeah. Yeah. Pick and roll. And I think a lot of places get get the emphasis wrong. What's it about? It's about the roller. The better roller you have, the more it's going to open up for everyone else. And that was why St. Mary's, when I was there, was so successful. We had a pretty good roller called Jock Landau. And um if you didn't do something to try and stop him, he was going to score. And if you did, then we had good guards that could find good shooters. Um, but it's, again, it's the idea of what this segment of the game should be about first and foremost. And then when that gets covered, let's find the other stuff, where the help's coming from, what they're doing as a, as a defensive unit. You know, you just gave me a flashback because I did a game, a Gonzaga-St. Mary's game in Moraga back when uh... – Del Vadova was playing and he was the first guy I ever saw use. Now this is 10, 12 years ago. What, what I would call the hostage dribble where he came to the screen and he stopped and the yep. defender was on his back. And then he threw a hook pass to the corner to Mickey McConnell or somebody like that. And, and I, if it was the first time it, I really, it, it revealed to me, I'm missing something here because we would have never let anybody make a jump pass or a hook pass across the court. Yeah. And Maddie did it effortlessly. And I said, I need to learn this. And that's where I got my interest in international pick and roll. Yeah. Well, Delhi's uh, not the most athletic. And so we started trying to figure out ways we could use, because he's a big, strong guard. And then you look at what do you do when you box out? You go and make contact to negate the athleticism of the other player. So let's put that into a pick and roll situation. How can we negate the athleticism of the defender and use Delhi's strength, which is his strength. And so he can stop on people. And once he's, once he's got them locked up, they're no longer athletic. They might be long, but they can't jump and run and stuff. And he will be the person that says go. So if you're in a running race and you say go, you're going to win every time. So he can stay there as long as he wanted. When he thought he was ready to go, he'd go and the defense, just not enough space to catch up. So that was the idea of that. I mean, the jump to pass thing, and I was, I was the same as I taught don't jump to pass, but I just thought that was taking away a big section of viable options. So my teaching there is not, you can jump to make a pass, but you can't jump to find a pass. I so like if money's there, you can jump to yeah. make it, but yes. you're not jumping hoping something good is going to happen. And that's, yeah. we allow our guys to jump if they know they're going to open up angles. So. Yeah, totally agree. I, 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 that's something. If I were, if I were back coaching today, would be a, a big part. I, I almost think some of these things happen organically. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a, you've got a Jock Landale rolling to the basket. The weak side defender tagging him has to help. 
And you just have to get the ball to the other corner because he's wide open and he makes 42% of his threes. And yeah. it's almost organic the way it has developed with you guys. And then also in Europe too. Uh, my friend Huertas from Brazil is still going strong in the ACB. And Good. he's, he, I think, I think it would be a great race to see who's slower, him or Joe Ingles. <laughs> but they're so slow that they destroy the defense because you don't know what they're going to end up doing. No, and then you, you, you tie that in with a sequencing of events. So, so they come off a can I score? Can the role of score is not throw it on or throw it back? And that's a teaching there. But also the playing slow is important and always put it into the same context as if you're crossing a road. If you come up to the road, up to the sidewalk, and you just barrel on out there quickly, something good might happen. You might get to the other side or you might not. And that's what basketball is. Sometimes you've got to slow down and have a look. So if you slow down, you can see lots of good things. And that's has always been Joe's strength is that uh, he kind of plays, he plays slow, but it's not as slow as you think. He's just got great balance. And he's like the, the really good sports people that you look at and say, oh, they're not trying very hard. They're trying hard. They just make it look easy. I mean, I, I go through a lot of good cricketers and a lot of good tennis players that just make the game look easy. And that's kind of Joe. So he looks like he's going slow, but he's actually working hard and he's actually doing it but the slowness allows him to see everything that's going on around him. No, I totally agree. I think, uh, you know, there's plays I've seen Joe make. I've studied Joe a lot in pick and roll, especially when he was healthy. And he's got the ball in his hands for the very last second, and you don't know if he's going to shoot the, the layup, the lob to Gobert, the pass to the other corner. And it literally is the very last second before he has to decide. Yeah. And he's making you pick your poison, and then he poisons you. Yeah, and Emmett Nah, who was with us at St. Mary's, is exactly the same. I mean, his, his ability to throw passes late was phenomenal. And he could bend himself backwards and throw him around the defense. He could drop it underneath. He could throw it behind him. He had a really nice burst of speed, but he wasn't quick. And his ability to play slow allowed him to really make last-second decisions. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think I, I want to make sure when I say Joe was slow, it was not a negative. It was... Uh, his, <laughs> his, brilliant, his brilliance is, is yeah. that last second decision making, which I, yeah, that's right. which is the opposite of guys who run, run, run defenders <laughs> over. <laughs> no, that's where, I was going to say that's where, where Paddy got really good is when he learned to be slow. If you just play at the same speed, whether it's fast or slow, you can be guarded. When he learned to slow down and then accelerate and slow, he became impossible to guard. Um, and I remember talking to him about about that a lot. It's like here you're quicker than everyone else, but eventually you're going to play against another Pat Mills from another country or from the USA or wherever. What else do you have to go to? And part of that is being able to use your change of speed, not just your speed. Yeah. I, I'm curious about Patty. Was he always this good a shooter? Because it seems to me. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> I went and watched Paddy when he was like uh, just playing Canberra. I think he was maybe 14. He had 72 points. He didn't shoot one jump shot. It was all on the rim. And then we brought him in the, the back end of that year just to train with a group because we knew he was going to be good and eventually get here. Uh, and so the first thing we're going to do is just teach you how to shoot. And he couldn't shoot. He would, and he was almost his own worst enemy because he was so meticulous about his preparation. He overthought shooting. And so it became very rigid and very um, mechanical. And it wasn't until he gained some trust. And I can remember the game that I, without having asked him, we played New Zealand in a qualifying series and they went under ball screens. And uh, uh, Corey Webster was the defender who was a heck of a player. And uh, I said, Paddy, you're going to have to shoot one. Otherwise, like, and he made three in a row. And it was like, here's a new Pat Mills. Here's a, here's a new toy. It was like when Aaron Baines got his right-hand jump hook. Their whole world changes. And the ability for a coach to be able to put players in a position where they can be successful because I've done the work and they trust themselves, I think is probably the most powerful thing a coach can have because it, it gives a player it gives a player genuine self-belief in that situation. And from then on, Patty's shooting it got better every year. I think it's still getting better. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I totally agree. I, that's what I love about even even this summer and it's almost like at his age he's still getting better I mean yeah. and uh, I remember when he signed with the Nets that 
that season didn't go well because of the injuries, but I thought what a steal they got to be able to play with Durant and that group. And, you know, and uh, I, you know, one thing I I didn't want to, I wasn't even thinking about asking you this, but I want to know, I got to get your opinion on this. I I, I certainly am not going to bash Ben Simmons here, but I, I really felt last spring and summer after the, the debacle that the the 76ers as a whole, not just him. I, I think if he had decided and his, and his agents, cause we know that has a lot to do with it in the NBA, I'm going to play for the boomers. I want to be around for a month. I want to be around Patty Mills, Joe Ingles, Aaron Baines, like somehow to me, that would have been like a great elixir for, for him. And it didn't happen. I just, what, what's your thought on that? Cause that's how I felt. Yeah, I'm very similar. I miss Ben. I mean, I knew Ben as a young kid and I played against his dad and uh, his kid, uh, Ben, played against my kids when they were young. But then I left the Institute and went to the state, so I kind of missed that development period. So I don't know Ben that well. Um, but I do agree that I think if he could – the piece I do know is I know the boom as well. <laughs> and I know if he just immersed himself in that – culture for a summer now just got up in the morning went to work like my good friend says work like a farmer just go and work like a farmer when the sun gets up just go and do your work when the sun goes down go to bed and i think if you could do that around those other guys uh, it i would be very interested to see where he his mind and his career would go to but yeah that's, yeah, I know. I know. We can't, we can't, we can only hope for that. I just felt yeah. like coming off last spring in that NBA season and now, now the stuff that's going on now, but that's just an aside. It's not what, uh, you know, uh, I, I just popped into my head. Um, one of the things about you coaching at AIS that I, I checked on and read up on is that you were pretty demanding of these guys. Like you're pretty much a, I, I just, <laughs> that's what, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't until about 10 years later. <laughs> right. And then they, and they, like most coaches who coach that way, and I felt like I was this way, they appreciate you 10 or 15 years later because yeah. they know you had their best interest at heart. You're the technical director now at the, at the NBA, um, you know, the, the NBA Academy. Is coaching changed? You know, like, have you changed? Has coaching changed? Have the players oh, changed? Yeah. What, no, what do you think? Definitely as a – I, mean, I got the job here reasonably young. I was in my mid-30s. And uh, you, you just get more knowledge as you get older and you get more ideas and ways to do things. I, I, I was fairly hard on them. But I looked at, <laughs> uh, I looked at um, the sport that Australia does very well in is swimming on international stage. I said, well, if we do well at swimming, why can't we do well at basketball? So I went and looked and I talked to swimming coaches. I went and watched them coach. And they were pretty old school and they habits and demeanor and what they expected and they practice twice a day they get up in the morning when they swim they go off and do they come back and they swim so well that's if swimmers can do it why can't basketballers do it because in australia the culture of basketball in australia is you know probably practice twice a week and play three games and that's kind of what it was like i'd been through the institute so i knew i knew what um as a player so i knew i knew what facilities were available i knew what players were capable of and I thought we can do more than what we've been doing and we um, put in extra shooting sessions and, and we, we added lots of other things too not just the basketball piece we I got really big into via AFL football tradition and culture and as the basketball in Australia was only a generation old football has been around for 100 something years and I wanted to go to different sports and find out what they did well uh, what swimming did well, what AFL did well, why they're successful, how can I integrate that into, into a basketball program that's n- neither about winning specifically, that's not the number one priority. And you usually get into basketball programs for two reasons. It's either a business model I'm trying to make money or it's about winning championships. And the AIS slash COE slash NBAGA is not about those things. It's specifically about player development and about developing players within the concept of the team culture. And that's what separates us from lots of other things. So, so yeah, I was, I was pretty hard on and, and they, um, <laughs> they've probably got lots of stories that they tell us. Most of them are probably too 
probably still too scared to tell me. So, <laughs> other, other than Joe, we will always bring something up. <laughs> I had a player uh, who got married recently uh, and he made four NBA teams uh, as a player. Um, he went to training camp with four teams in his career and he made all four of them. And he got up at his wedding and he thanked me because of how tough I was on him. Yeah. And well. said, he said, I, I, every time I, every time I went to a camp, I knew I was more prepared than the other guy because of what I put him through. <laughs> no, it's not, not a bad thing. I mean, you've, um, yeah, <laughs> you, players have always got more to give than what they realize. And I think it's our job to find a way to get it out of them. Yeah. Uh, tell me this couple more. I, I appreciate your time. We're, you know, um, I know you're, I know you're busy. You, your experience at St. Mary's, first of all, tell me, tell me about like, what surprised you about college basketball in the States, both good and bad, because all of us who love the game, we know it's not a perfect game yeah. and there's some great things. And there's some things I wish we could change. I love FIBA rules, for example, I think four quarters and things like that, but what would, what did you, what was your experience like at St. Mary's with Randy Bennett? Yeah, I mean, it is a different game. At that stage, it was with James from 35 to 30 in the shot clock and coming out of a 24-second shot clock. That was, that was a, like, you run an offense for 17 seconds. It's like, okay, we'll just back it out and we'll run another 17 seconds. I mean, that was, that was, that was one, of, and I think that's one of the better changes to go to a shorter shot clock. Um, I think the, the scouting that's done at college was, was way in excess of anything I'd, I'd seen before. Uh, and that's mainly because you just have more coaches. So in Australia, you tend to have a coach, and if you're lucky, you might have an assistant coach. At NBA level, you might have an assistant and maybe a second one. But the amount of time and effort that went into scouting, and, and that might have just been Coach Bennett too, because I know he's, he's pretty nuts on that too. But it won us lots of games because we knew exactly what the other team was doing. Uh, I think you can only do as much scouting as your team can handle, though. I think sometimes you overload kids and confuse them. And there's no better way to produce a bad basketball than, than to confuse them. So there's a balance between how much you give and how much you can. We always have guys who could take plenty. Uh, so the scouting piece, I think the one thing with college was um, it kind of narrows your coaching because you have so limited time with your team. When I first went there, it was a four weeks and you can go six days a week before your first game, and that's it. I think that's out to six now, and you can go five. So there's a little bit more, but you've got to get good very quickly at what you're going to do. Uh, whereas in the environment I'm in, I can really experiment with lots of things, and let's see uh, what we we'll try here, because we're trying to give them a basketball education, not just an education on what the Global Academy does, because when they leave me, they will, who knows where they go. Who knows what type of offense, what type of defense they're going to run, what systems they're going to play. So we try and give them a bit of a lot of things and a, and a, a bigger grounding on not just the skill level, but the basketball education. Yeah. All right. We got to let you go here in a few minutes. So tell us about the NBA Global Academy. You left St. Mary's. You came back basically to the Center for Excellence where you yep. spent so much time. And the NBA, five, six years ago now, it's going strong. You've got guys getting drafted. We know many of these guys that are successful in college uh, in the States. And and uh, tell me about the NBA Global Academy. Give us the best advertisement for it. Yeah, I mean, as I said, it's about player development, number one. It's not about making money. It's not about winning championships. So our job is to produce players. It's about not just the basketball player, but it's about how to be a pro, what's going to happen to you in the pro world, uh, how you're going to handle yourself, what are the distractions of the pro world, how do I... And we, we say two things. The first day they come in, I said, I want you to leave with these two things. Uh, and as the kids are all looking at me, but I've only just got here. Well, I'm saying yes, but you have to understand the next year or two years is about making sure you can coach yourself on the floor because you don't know what your next coaching staff is going to be like and make sure you can look after yourself off the floor. Now, that's... Nutrition, it's psychology, it's uh, dealing with adversity, it's dealing with media, dealing with social media, uh, it's the distractions of what happens in the pro world. The, all these things are going to come at you and our job is to produce not just a rounded basketball player and not just a rounded basketballer, but also a rounded human. And we want to produce good people because we feel that when adversity hits, it's nothing about your basketball skill or your basketball knowledge. It's about how you are as a person. 
And I think circling right back to the start, you know, the, the guys you mentioned, the Paddies and the Joes and the Delis and Mitch Creeks and all the good Australians that have come through here, Baines is another one, nature, that they all grab hold of, of that other piece, uh, being good leaders, being good people, and that's held them in good stead uh, for whatever happens in their basketball life. Because once they leave here, I, I don't have any control. So I try and give them some coping strategies and some strategies to recognise a problem before it becomes a problem. And I think the biggest thing we preach is if you need help, ask for help. Don't be too proud to ask for help. Because there's lots of good minds and lots of good people out there. Uh, whichever situation you go into, there's going to be people around that can help you get through things. Yeah, um, that's excellent stuff. By the way, one of your guys I got to know really well, Jonathan Chamwachachua. Oh, yeah. 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 Who's one of the best young people that you'll ever meet, and he's had a terrible injury that he's probably going to – it's going to take a while to bounce back yeah. from. But all the points you talked about, dealing with adversity and being a good person, and that's probably going to put him in good stead as he recovers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, yeah, he, he's a fantastic guy. He came in a great guy. He, he's uh, – Get, hopefully going to get back to where he, the level he was playing at because I thought he was on the borderline of being draftable for the NBA. I mean, yes, sir. Yeah, you're right. He scouted the rings up and said, oh, we want guys, are great guys, and they work. I said, that's Jonathan. <laughs> Just go and draft Jonathan. No, no I know it. He's, uh, I've got to know him well, obviously, because I covered the Big 12 so closely. Yeah. Um, one last question, and then we'll say thank you so much. Uh, Josh, was, Josh Giddy was a kid that really wasn't – on the radar, as I recall, what what is it about him? I know his dad. I think you played with his dad too, right? Yeah, his dad played in Bulmia. Yeah. yeah, he was on that team. What what is it about Josh that allowed him to just explode and become the you know a, a terrific NBA rookie? Uh, he certainly he always had the, the vision and the willingness to pass. He really placed an emphasis on passing, way more than scoring. Uh, again, great team guy. He was growing at different stages and he came from a big basketball community, so it's hard to get recognised and they're always looking at who can help with win. And Josh is sort of the, not the guy that could help you win under under 14s and 16s because he was sort of big and gangly, um, but he always had that basketball instinct and basketball knowledge and he was a great teammate. Another when it all came together... We were just lucky here that that all came together while he was here. And um, he actually cut his stay short with us because we felt he'd need to move on, similar to Dyson Daniels. Dyson should still be here. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. He's going to get drafted in a month's time and he should still be here. That uh, those two kids got good so quickly because they were very coachable and they were very curious about how good they could actually be. And you got Ty, Ty, Tyrese Proctor heading to Duke next year. Another one of those guards. All right, I promised a final question. What's it like to have the Jack Jumpers uh, of Tasmania back in the well, NBA? Your home, my home, yeah, my home state. I, I, I played NBL down there with a team that went defunct, um, and it was good for the sport. Tasmania is a huge sporting community. I mean, obviously, football is good. Basketball, they love their sport. And it's not so much about the size of the community; it's about the, uh, you know, the, the buy-in and, and the willingness to want to support. And they've got a really good supporter base down there. Uh, their their junior programs are doing well. They're winning medals at, at national championships. And the coach that set that up is also the assistant coach of the Jack Jumpers, so he's he's doing a phenomenal job there as well. That's great. Well, uh, coach, we couldn't thank you enough. The, we love educating our basketball fans around the world, and. Uh, Anytime I can talk to somebody that's involved with Australian basketball, I know I'm going to learn something. So can't thank you enough. Uh, Continue success at the NBA Global Academy. I hope I see you somewhere down the road soon and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, yes, absolutely. Hopefully catch up in July in Atlanta, mate. Maybe, maybe. I'm, uh, I'm actually busy now. I've just taken over USA's 3X3 program. So, okay, so you'll, we're, see, we're, uh, you, you'll get to see a fantastic guy called Richard Ballant that coaches the French team. Get okay. He's fantastic. I will. I will. I've been watching every FIBA 3X3 event I can, yeah. learning a sport. It's pretty cool, actually. I think it's yeah. great player development. Absolutely. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll do my part to see if we can grow it a little more in the States. But uh, hey, continue success to you. Send my best to everybody at the NBA Global Academy, and we will catch up soon. 
Okay. Thanks, Frank. Many thanks to Coach Marty Clark, uh, who is now the technical director of the NBA Global Academy. Uh, great insight uh, on some so many things uh, basketball-wise, and uh, hope you enjoyed that. By the way, if you're a college basketball fan, Tyrese Proctor, another graduate here soon of the NBA Global Academy, will be a Duke Blue Devil this coming fall as a freshman. He's a six foot four guard. Uh, just a couple of years ago, Jack White, another Aussie, uh, played for Coach K. This time it's going to be John Shire, uh, the new coach at Duke. So keep your eye on Tyrese Proctor. Santi Vescovi, who's going to be a senior at Tennessee this year, another NBA Global Academy uh, mentee of Coach Clark, uh, Jonathan Chamochachua, who you heard us talk about in the podcast as well, and, and a number of others around college basketball. So thank you, Coach Clark, for your insight. And uh, as we get into the NBA, uh, deep into the NBA playoffs right now, uh, I know you're enjoying watching Andrew Wiggins from the Warriors and, of course, Luka Doncic, the great one from the uh, Dallas Mavericks. They've got their work cut out for them, but it uh, should be a great series, a Canadian and a Slovenian. And that's the beauty of the NBA right now. Um, the MVP of the league, uh, Jokic. Uh, we're talking about Doncic. We're talking about the Greek freak. And we got a special surprise, by the way, coming up uh concerning the Greek freak, which you're going to enjoy in the next couple of weeks. So with that, you know, no matter where I am uh, next week, I'll bring you to another place in my world of basketball. World of basketball is part of the Sirius XM podcast network. The executive producer is Chris Tyler sound designed by Robert Moore. A special thanks to Sirius XM senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. Sirius XM Podcasts.